Hello and welcome to the first episode of Teaching with Technology. In this podcast, we will speak to members of the UNC community who utilize digital teaching to enhance their classrooms. We hope to be a source that instructors can use to learn about techniques and mindsets of fellow instructors. I think students will enjoy this as well. As a student, I always wanted to know why my teachers were doing certain lessons. My name is Patrick and I'm one of the hosts. I am a Master's of Information Science student here at Sales at UNC. I'm interested in podcasts and digital humanities, so I'm really excited to learn and discuss this topic. I'm joined by Allison and Kat. Hi, my name is Kat. I'm an undergraduate student here. I am majoring in English and communications, and I think I have a unique perspective considering I've done undergraduate classes through COVID, so I have some interesting thoughts, and I'm excited to see what technology does. My name is Allison Beatty, and I'm a master's student in information science at SILS at UNC, and I'm interested in online community history and online teaching. I don't have as much experience with online courses as Kat does, but I think it'll be an interesting conversation regardless. It'll be interesting to get to know each other as this process goes on. Our first guest is also our boss. It's Dan Anderson, English professor, correct, at UNC? That's correct. And so I guess this is sort of an interesting way to start, but what is sort of your research background and why is this something that you want to take on? I feel like I have a foot in in two different worlds, and one of those is in kind of print-based literacy, very familiar English professor kinds of activities, a lot of book reading, language. I have vivid memories of, you know, learning to read with my my mom teaching me how to read, making our own books. And so I have a very strong um, affinity with written language, with prose, with print-oriented thinking and communication. When I went to graduate school, um, I was concerned about job prospects and someone recommended I go teach in a computer lab. And when I started teaching with computers, I found it really liberating because there's always something new to learn. And you can often use computers to kind of work against the grain of typical assignments. So, you know, making something as a web page instead of an essay automatically opens up new possibilities. And then when you move to video or audio, you get a whole bunch of other new possibilities. So what I really like about podcasts in particular is I think they're constantly moving back and forth between print literacy and digital literacy because podcasts are primarily made up of words. So there's this kind of like comfortable sense of working in print modes. But at the same time, you can't do a podcast the way you would do a research report. You can't like have long-winded sentences. So it's a really nice mode and genre for balancing these two different realms. You know, how do students respond to them? Uh, I find that students really enjoy making these audio essays. There's, you know, two components. There's a technical piece of using an audio editor. So that allows us to experiment a little bit. It's really interesting the way that our understanding of how to compose using a word processor has become so naturalized that we don't really think about it. We just take it for granted. We type linear text and we put fingers on keyboards. But as soon as you have like multiple audio channels and you're 
varying the intensities of volume on different channels and moving things around in, in sequence, you recognize that composing is not natural, that there's all kinds of different steps and learning curves that you have to take on. And then the other part is adjustments that you make to the words that you use. So if you have to be really concise in a podcast, then you, you've got to spend some time changing how you talk in some ways. Sort of the thing that jumped out at me was you talked about how, you know, something like Microsoft Word is sort of taught to us when we're, you know, in elementary school these days. And, I, and now with, you know, introducing a new technology, you know, it's part of the learning process. And, but do you think that it's ever a barrier or do you think it's all just part of the experience? Like, do you think that it's, I don't, and I'm trying to think of the best way to kind of phrase this question, but it's like, you know, when you're working with an audio editor, you know, you're learning a new skill at the same time. And I, I don't know if it, you find that it can be distracting from the overall end product. There is a challenge. I often find there's this kind of ironic understanding that develops after you finish a project using a new technology that you're not familiar with. So, you know, the knowledge that you need, you kind of need it before you get started in order to make a really solid project. But you only arrive at that knowledge at the end after you've completed the project and kind of tripped over stuff and, and figured things out. You come to a print assignment with the, the knowledge of how to do it more or less already in place. Um, and when you're doing something that you're unfamiliar with, that's not the case. You, you really are at a disadvantage in some ways. If you could do it and then redo it afterwards, it might work better. When I was in undergrad, it was pretty standardized, but I know Kat mentioned that she has some experience with digital classes. And I was wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, thank you so much for asking. Considering I spent a year and a half, three semesters pretty much doing online classes, there is something ultimately I think more accessible about using technology in a widespread way in the classroom. It was a lot easier to attend class if you had to juggle work um, or other things in your life. Um, but at the same time, I feel like there was something incredibly lacking about the community aspect of college that I feel like it was very hard to replicate feelings of community and the social aspect of what one expects college to be like when it's predominantly online. So I think that that's an interesting line that you have to walk between making things accessible and also making people feel less alone. That's interesting, Kat, because I've been thinking about using digital work like making audio essays or podcasts as a way of adding authenticity in that the human voice has a kind of connective element to it. When I hear someone talking, it's kind of like their thoughts are embodied in the, in the voice that's projected toward me and vibrations come into my ears. And I think of it as a very direct kind of engagement, almost more so than if I'm reading an essay that someone wrote. So I think of these audio projects as connecting people and bringing them together. But the same phenomenon, I think, can be alienating or, or create different senses of engagement or connection when the class is taught that way. So if I'm mediated through the screen, you're hearing my voice, but I don't know that it carries forward the kind of expectations that I had been imagining for when you are talking instead of typing at someone. I think you're absolutely right in that. 
Um, I was really lucky a couple semesters ago that in lieu of actually physically writing a final paper, I was able to make a video essay where I was able to sort of narrate my argument and my analysis of this television show. And it was easily one of my favorite assignments that I've ever done. The vocalness of the human experience allows for video essays and podcasts and things to feel more conversational and makes learning more accessible. Um, and so I really like the inclusion of having these alternate things. It's one of the things that brought me to the communications field in the beginning was how accessible media is and the production of media and making sense of human connection. Um, but just generally speaking, having an entire class on Zoom or online um, often felt very isolating for me as a student because I wasn't able to have my little side conversations with students. I wasn't able to form friendships in the same way that I was. And so I think the future of digital technology should definitely be more of a hybrid format. So we get to keep the goods of everything, if that makes sense. It, it does. I totally get what you're saying. And, um, you know, it causes me to rethink things a little bit. It's um, uh, obviously more complicated than are you putting fingers on a keyboard or talking into a microphone. There's absolute truth, I think, in what you're saying, that things become more colloquial, more conversational when they're through the human voice. Um, but that doesn't guarantee that there's a strong connection and, and feeling of affinity through a, a Zoom class just because people are talking rather than typing. Kat, I'm curious about what you said about um, not being able to form relationships in the same way with your cohort when um, you're on Zoom or any sort of online class as opposed to in person. Um, because networking is such an important part of going to school. And it's like, think about how awkward parties are on Zoom because you don't have like little groups everywhere where you can peel off and move around and mingle and socialize it's just like one person talking out of time and the whole group and i think that was a big adjustment for a lot of people when everything became virtual because of covid yeah i think that's a great point i'm really lucky in that i've met some of my nearest and dearest friends in undergrad just through randomly picking up conversation before lecture started and i feel like zoom does a great job or zoom adjacent programs as well do a great job of sort of trying to replicate that small group experience through breakouts but at the same time you don't get to see how i'm sitting or how my arms are laying across the table and so i feel like you only get half of the conversation through video chats there's so much of Zoom communication that lacks and like body language or semiotics or even like seeing what kind of clothes the person wears or how they carry themselves. I wonder if there's also um, a difference in the kind of simultaneity of the experience. I mean, we are all having the experience simultaneously in the same virtual space, but not in the same physical space. And I'm thinking of the analogy of like watching a, a film in a theater versus watching a film at home on your laptop or even on a massive TV screen. When the audience laughs, the jokes seem funnier. It, it, there's more of a shared participation by being in the same space, I think. 
I've never had a Zoom class before. This is my first year of graduate school and all my classes are in person. So, you know, I've, I've loved my in-between class interactions and pre and post lecture discussions. And it feels to me like, you know, 50, at least 50% of the experience is, you know, interacting with others. And that's why I'm so excited to be a part of this podcast and see what the future of integrating technology is with classrooms. Because I think that there was this really big push to return to traditional schooling as soon as possible to return to the sense of normalcy and return to the perks of seeing people in person. But I love the fact that we are incorporating technology going forward and we're being more understanding and having more opportunities. So if you are sick, you can still participate in class via Zoom and it's not as pressure to learn or to perform in a certain way. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And I imagine as we you know, get more people talking about digital teaching, that these access questions will probably bubble up over and over again. There's this double-edged aspect to, you know, technology democratizes in many ways and allows more people to participate. Um, and then on the other side, it also excludes people. And, uh, you know, access to technology is a major challenge in many, in many ways, too. And then the different ways that different people access materials is problematized by technology quite a bit, too. So I bet, I bet we'll be talking about that some more. And I think this comes up over and over again with how the politics and ethics of technology affect distance learning and like using the internet as this sort of mediating body. Yeah, I think, I'm, I'm not sure if Allison and Patrick, you sort of relate to this, but I feel like I've always seen the internet as a place to build community, which seems inherently sort of contradictory if I spent this entire episode talking about how lonely exclusively socially on the internet is um but i remember talking about my favorite bands at 13 years old online with other fans who lived across the state or across the world and that was very helpful because i felt like it was a way to interact with people who were similar to me at a time when when you're in middle school you don't feel connected to anyone that's sort of the loveliness of middle school And so I think that technology can be a place to foster community, but in very specific ways. And it's not the only, we shouldn't use it as the only way to foster a sense of socialization in connection with actual human interaction. I think it's really beneficial. And I'm very excited that we sort of have a future of hybrid learning because I think that my generation that was born in 2000 was one of the first to use the internet as such a heavy place of socialization. Yeah, I'm eager to hear over time about these experiences and I'm so glad you're on the group. I have often thought about this online community question from this sort of dynamic of if there's an existing community and you add digital tools, what do you get versus do communities form in digital spaces themselves? And, you know, uh, I think that plays out at a lot of different levels. There's, you know, maybe a group of four or five friends. And when they connect on a Zoom call to facilitate interacting, it's going to be really different than people in a classroom. Or maybe there's a community of people who are just really into bird watching, And so they, you know, become part of some social media group related to bird watching. And I'm, you know, curious whether, you know, if they didn't already exist, 
fans of bird watching, whether that community would be as strong or, or gel together online. But Kat, I, what I hear you saying is that that community itself can just form online. Yeah, I definitely think so. And I think that internet communities, especially in pre-COVID, um, did also have in-person outlets, which made the dynamics slightly different. Um, because if you were into bird watching, to keep on with the metaphor, you were able to meet people in your area and bird watch together. Or in my case, if I was interested in music, you would meet fans at concerts. You would talk, have a conversation with someone who was wearing their t-shirt at the supermarket. And so I think there was this inherent physical contact in that bled out of these online communities. And so I'm excited to see if any per- completely online communities will grow out of COVID or if they will eventually find in-person outlets as well. Yeah. I had an interesting experience. I was out on a running trail with someone and we were, you know, just going along the trail and, and they ended up recognizing someone and stopping and talking. So they had this really nice in-person engagement. I asked them later and they said, well, they knew each other from doing Pokemon Go activities, which to me was this really interesting hybrid of people being mediated digitally on a phone but then somehow being driven together into these physical spaces through these shared activities. So it's kind of a mess, I think, but an interesting collection of opportunities. We all sort of interact with this on a daily basis. And that's sort of, that's my kind of my takeaway is that whether you're using it all the time for school or or not, like it's, it's something that everyone is aware of and is currently in the process of, you know, fully integrating. Is there anything... I guess you, Dan, as a professor, is there anything that you're wary of as as it kind of as this trend goes? I'm excited about it and happy to see how it plays out. One of the challenges I think has to do with labor. Teaching can be pretty arduous. It can be a lot of labor involved in preparing, teaching, giving feedback, these all of these activities. And if you end up trying to operate in two modes, both this kind of this hybrid mode that is online and face-to-face. I think this has mostly just been a, a result of the pandemic and people having to cobble together solutions to um, to make things work. But often I think right now what we're finding is we're in this sort of limbo space of some people engaging face-to-face, some people engaging remotely, and it may not be optimal in that we're trying to do both of those at the same time. It feels like a more strategic mix of everybody come in face-to-face one day and then we'll all work remotely the other day, at least from an instructor's perspective, is easier to manage. Um, but I, you know, I hesitate to even say that because I feel like, you know, it's, it's an instructor's responsibility to try to meet students where they are um, and be as accommodating as possible. So if it turns out that learning is more comfortable for someone through the screen and for someone else it's more comfortable in the physical space then you know ideally it'd be nice to be able to do both of those at the same time obviously as a teacher you pull from other sources and examine you know how other people do things and you said you had some clips that you might want to share Yeah, absolutely. Let let me play a couple of quick audio samples that let me talk about this print audio dynamic in some ways. 
Uh, so I'll just play, maybe I'll play all three of them and then we can talk about them. You were just listening to No Other One by Weezer in their second album, Pinkerton. This is Aaron Nichols, and in this podcast, I'll be reviewing Pinkerton. Pinkerton is a much different album than Weezer's second album, The Blue Album. The Blue Album was a very pop-punk and light-hearted album. Its sounds were mainstream and more traditional radio rock and roll. Pinkerton is a darker, more emotional album. It's better listened to individually and introspectively rather than by pieces on the radio. It was written by the lead singer of Weezer, Rivers Kumo, after he had surgery. He was in a lot of pain and he was struggling dealing with his newfound fame. This struggle is reflected in his songs, and most of them deal with failed relationships and the lack of love in his life. I'll stop that one and then um, we'll try another sample here. I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina. My name is Gabriel Mann. I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. My name is Adrian Emma. I was born and raised in Miami, Florida. And they are the rescues. Both of those projects were part of an assignment where we we're doing kind of a music review. And so this gets to this difference between print and digital. There's always been a kind of frustration among people who study film or study music when it comes time to write up what they're thinking if you're limited to just paper. Audio review has this nice element of you can get some clips from the band and actually play them, and it sort of enacts the material in a way that is really being translated when you're only writing it up in an essay. But that does create these challenges and these new opportunities. So if that first clip that we listen to, it starts out with a, a bit of music from the band and it transitions into the narrator talking about it. And if you listen to that again, you kind of can almost visualize that narrator reading off a sheet of paper. So the, the tone of the narration is kind of flat. It's sort of monotone um, and it's, it, it doesn't have a performative element. It doesn't sound like someone speaking in a conversation. So you have this kind of hangover effect of really used to print. I'm gonna have to move into this audio mode, but it feels like I'm reading in some ways and it's not actually native to that environment. And then the other thing that I find has to do with almost just our cognitive ability to process materials in different modes is, you know, when I'm reading on a sheet of paper, I can stick with ideas for a long time and move through two or three paragraphs and kind of track things pretty easily. But when you switch to the ear, it becomes harder. I think it's easier to get distracted and a little easier to lose focus. And the other thing that happens is I think the sense of time shifts a little bit. 30 seconds in audio is a pretty long time. You can get a lot done and you can drift off. So the way that that first clip opens up, it plays the song and is trying to be a hook, but you really don't need to play that for more than five seconds or eight seconds or something to sort of say, this is the band. Now I'm going to transition into my uh, discussion of it. 
So uh, I, I think playing it for 20 or 30 seconds is it doesn't fit very well with the way that we process sound. It's better to have it paced quickly in small chunks that, that move along. The second one, I think, addresses that in some ways because it has a kind of collage thing. There's band members speaking, um, and then that pretty quickly transitions into the narrator saying, and they're the rescues, I'm introducing this band. So I think in terms of the organization and structure, that thing is working better for an audio mode. But here's where that technical stuff comes into play. There's some volume level issues. It's kind of hard to make out the narrator. The, the transitions aren't really smooth. So there's like some technical stuff that kind of gets in the way, even though that one's working maybe in a more native kind of audio mode. Writing a, an, a critical essay versus writing a speech are two different things. Emulating human conversation is something that no one gets right on their first try and even trying or even even showing someone that this is how this works and exposing a student to something like that, I think is is valuable even in itself. Who, the, the, the final product is almost less important than the lesson of how we communicate and how we write are different. I, I think that's a really important point. And, you know, I don't want to say this is exclusively the kind of purview of people who work in digital modes, but I think that invitation to experiment and fail and learn from things not working out perfectly um, is offered more frequently when people are taking on these new modalities, trying something new. The expectation is that you're not going to get it perfect, but you might still learn a whole lot from a project that doesn't turn out perfectly. And I'm super grateful for students who pursue these projects. Their, their goodwill is amazing. Speaking of trying and failing, I mean, has there been any, any thing that you've tried to incorporate or any project that Kat or Allison have been a part of that didn't really work and it was too frustrating? I made a terrible video essay in undergrad. I took an Appalachian literature class and the final project was to make a video essay in um, Final Cut Pro. And I'm ashamed of it to this day, <laughs> but I learned. What tripped you up? I was an English student. I was like 19. I did not know how to make a video. Now I do. Now I've been, the bookstore that I worked at as a bookseller did um, virtual events and I edited the videos for the YouTube page. And that's how I, I just taught myself how to do it. But prior to that, I did not know. And it was very daunting to try to learn the software. And I think I just didn't put in enough time as I should have to it. One of the things that I try to do when I teach with technology, I, I call it the low bridge approach, which is to use the technology with the lowest kind of threshold for learning in order to accomplish the task that you're trying to accomplish. So, you know, I don't know. I, I know I've used Final Cut Pro and it's, if you have a lot of time, you'll pick it up. And I think it's worth exploring, you know, when you're teaching with technology, what level of uh, sophistication and production quality is, is warranted to make one of these projects work. You know, if you're trying to make something for your bookstore, you probably want it to be well polished and, and as solid as possible. If you're just trying to learn how to compose using layers instead of uh, words on a page, 
then maybe any application will allow you to explore that process, even if the project turns out to be a little less sophisticated. Failure happens all the time. I mean, as an instructor, I'm always thinking through what I can do to make an assignment work a little better the next time or walk away from something if it doesn't work at all. Um, one of the things I know, um, uh, uh, we're also, you know, looking at social media and studying Twitter in the Digital Innovation Lab. And I've been doing this assignment for about two years now where I ask students to collect and analyze tweets with a hashtag. And I always try to allow agency among topic choice uh, in assignments. I think it's useful to not just hand someone a topic, um, but let them pick their own topic. It tends to uh, lead to more motivation in some ways. But I realized I was making a huge mistake with these Twitter hashtags by asking people to choose topics that are interesting to them because this community aspect that Kat was talking about sometimes bubbles up in Twitter conversations with certain hashtags and sometimes it doesn't. And it turns out the hashtag choice is actually really important. So, you know, if you're just interested in um, I don't know, a certain political party or, or some topic that, that you think is going to be great and you collect a bunch of tweets with that hashtag, there's no guarantee it's going to give you a good corpus of material to analyze looking for aspects of community. If you choose a hashtag like, I don't know, PhD chat or a hashtag linked with a fan group or something like that, it's going to um, have way better stuff that comes back. And it kind of has to do with this idea of, is there a community online? So, you know, sports fans or music fans or people all experiencing what it's like to be, you know, black and STEM, those hashtags work great when you do the assignment. And if you just choose a random hashtag, it doesn't work well at all. So I've, you know, kind of adjusted my approach on that of, being a little heavier handed and saying, no, you can't choose whatever hashtag you want. You've got to choose one that actually people are using to talk with one another a little bit. You've sort of talked about it a little bit, but, you know, if you have for, you know, newer teachers or teachers that are still adjusting to uh, this idea of digital teaching, do you have a, what's your secret? Like, but that's the title of our podcast, you know, what's your secret? And so do you have, like a mantra or a punchline that you think sums up how you feel about digital teaching? Work on calibrating an appropriate balance between familiarity and unfamiliarity, and then do that within an environment that, that uses trust as a mode of facilitating risk-taking. And so when you have a little bit of comfort and a little bit of discomfort, you end up creating this ability to get into the zone and kind of get challenged on things. So creativity researchers talk about that with, you know, surgeons or mountain climbers or something. If it's too hard of a mountain to climb and you're just an intermediate mountain climber, you're going to be overwhelmed. But if it's too boring and you're just going over some sand dunes, you're not going to be challenged. So you figure out how to use technology to add challenge to assignments through this unfamiliarity. The, the risk and trust piece of that, what I try to do is figure out ways to ameliorate how learning and processing 
those experiences could trip you up. I'd say you you think your secret would be using technology to introduce challenge. That sums it up. Using technology to introduce challenge. Okay, Allison or Kat, do you have any you know final thoughts? No, Patrick, I think you've done a great job moderating this. I loved hearing your perspective, Dan, as like a professor and being on the other side of the metaphorical like Zoom screen um, and what that changes as someone who's facilitating versus me who only participates in lectures that professors make. So I liked hearing that sort of change in perspective. I like this format. I thought it was kind of fun how Dan was almost doing like an AMA and just we could ask him questions from the other side, like Kat said. Yeah, I, I enjoyed the conversation. I think it'll be fun for you to be on on this side at some point throughout the series as well, Dan. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And, you know, uh, hopefully by the end, maybe we'll all just be in one big circle without uh, uh, a side or another. Even. I think that's the goal for sure. I take back what I said. No, don't take it back. It's all good. 